and they've been trying to prove to somebody, usually in their past, that they're worth it and that they matter. Money doesn't do it. Position doesn't do it. Status doesn't do it. None of that does it. The only thing you can do is close that wound. And I've worked with a number of people you would know who they are if I mentioned their name. Individuals who, for instance, because they weren't nurtured by their dad, they didn't nurture their kids. So their kid winds up wondering whether they're really lovable, whether they're worth it. And the dad just feels devastated by it when he understands it. But that can be resolved. Hi, and welcome to today's Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Pleasure, friend, to get together with you. It's been a few years. Matter of fact, it's been since 2014, I guess. The last time I had Joe Urkovich in the studio. Can't believe, Joe, that much time has gone by since the last time we were together. I can't believe it either. It seems like yesterday. <laughs> Definitely older, I can tell you that. We both have gotten just a little bit older. Maybe wiser. Well, you're probably wiser, I'm sure. Good to have you stop by. We've been talking about getting together for a while now. Scheduled conflicts and pandemics and I don't know everything you know, happening with life. Haven't been able to do that. That, but how are things going with you and your family? They're going pretty well right now, Byron. It's interesting to see how their cycles in the family, but we're really pleased with where things are right now. Yeah. Arliss, your sweetheart from high school or no, college? I met her in college. You met her in college. Yeah. Was it an instant attraction? Yeah, she's a beautiful woman. You know, I'm just a normal guy, so I saw her and said I got to date her. <laughs> I didn't know where it was going to go. So how much convincing did you have to do before she realized that you were the one for her? Well, actually quite a bit. <laughs> I was a little different than her family, let's put it that way. <laughs> I didn't know boundaries and rules very well. Okay, so you had to learn that. Yeah, they were kind of from a more rigid background. Wonderful well, people. but And you guys have been married for how long now? Uh, 52 years. 52 years. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd have one woman in your life for 52 years? You know, I didn't know what the future held when I got <laughs> married. It was like, we're doing this now, you know, and the commitment part of it, we both made when we first got married. We said, you know, we're not going to uh, entertain divorce as an option. We're going to work through whatever we face. So you understood that commitment when you made it? I understood that the commitment needed to be there. I don't understand what it was going to take to get there. Or how difficult it was to keep that commitment yes. along the way. Yes. Part of what you do is talking to couples about their marriages, ways they can have healthier marriages. Yeah, I do that a lot on an individual basis, but also in the line of work I do. That's part of the standard operating procedure for most, uh, most CEOs, female or male, um, is to try to get into their... Uh, personal life because that's where all things are really held accountable. And you work a lot with executive leadership, both in the corporate world, the sports world. You are the senior executive with Align Advisor. Tell me about this organization. Well, what we do, Byron, is really we try to help people become a better version of themselves. We go inside of them with their permission and with their cooperation, and we help them understand what it is that really drives them. Most of the time when um, leaders start out in life, they, they kind of have a goal. They kind of have a what mentality. What am I going to do to be able to accomplish this, and how am I going to do it? And they spend most of their time there. Simon Sinek a few years ago came out with this concept of know your why, and everybody's been on that track ever since, and it's a good thing, know your why. But we believe that you can't really sustain knowing your why and keeping it engaged without knowing who you are. Yeah. So we start with who, and we build out from there. There's a lot of people in leadership positions, they haven't taken the path to develop those skills of what it takes to be the right leader. What I see generally is successful leaders, because that's who I really work with, uh, Align has really 
geared toward working with people who've already reached success, but they want something more. And so they bring us in to help do the analysis and help put them personally on a track to take advantage of all the gifts and abilities they have inside themselves. And so uh, the the issue isn't really to... um, to create a new leader, the issue is to help them understand the leader they are and to use those strengths that they possess internally okay. to help facilitate where they want to go. Let's back up a little bit in your own personal journey with leadership. Who are some examples of leadership that helped to shape your understanding of leadership? And can we kind of direct it somewhat in a biblical leadership, too? Because I know you've been a pastor, mm-hmm. and I kind mm-hmm. of want to speak to some of the issues pertaining to pastors in their leadership roles. Sure, and we work with churches, too. I was just out in Bellingham, Washington with a church and spent some time with their leadership. A wonderful time, a good group of folks. And uh, both their lay leadership and their staff leadership. And uh, it's very rewarding because the principles of leadership are the same. No matter whether you're working in the church or whether you're working in business, a leader's a leader. And the process for leadership development is transferable. So we, we use the same methodologies. And basically, there's a real fundamental thing that I believe is absolutely essential for a leader to be effective. And that is to know what it is that drives them. And I'm not talking about my family drives me, you know, success drives me. The bottom Excellence, line. Yeah. Um, I'm not talking about those kind of values. I'm talking about what is it inside of you that causes you to be uniquely you. And that aspect of it has both a consistent and an inconsistent side. For instance, for myself, I'm, I, one of my primary drivers is to be inspirational. But the inconsistent side of that is to be power hungry. So you can see there's quite a continuum we yeah. live on. Yeah. And with that as a fact, it helps people understand why they get in trouble with folks because they've never really seen the continuum. All they've seen is they try to put forward the best model they can of who they are without really understanding the inconsistency. So there are these blind spots yep. that can cause this. For you, what are some blind spots that you've had to face in your life? How have you turned those into positive leadership traits? Yeah, one of the primary issues that I've had to deal with in my life from a leadership perspective has to do with how competence plays into my view of self. I'm very motivated by understanding things and being able to articulate them and utilize them in a practical sense. So I need to be competent to do that because I meet with leaders at very high levels. To do that, you have to know what you're doing. You cannot wing it. Believe me, they don't buy into it. And they'll tell you, by the way. So competence is very important. When I was younger, I didn't understand that one of the inconsistent aspects of competence is that you always see the holes in things. So you can never celebrate the things you've actually accomplished, and you can't accept compliments because you're always thinking about what needs to be fixed. That took me years to get past because it bound me up, you know, because everything I did was not good enough. It's almost like an identity crisis then, to some degree, figuring out who you are. Well, in a sense, it's not really so much an identity crisis as it is an identity uh, illumination, where you actually become aware of who you are. To go back to what I was stating earlier, I think that's essential thing, is for a leader to understand their values, and then to understand how they impact other people. If they get those two things aligned in their life... They're going to be able to have a more powerful impact on the folks that they want to actually lead effectively. So is that also looking at the strengths and weakness balance there? 
Yes. That's a key thing. Yeah. Most people never take the time to sit down with a piece of paper and write all their strengths down on one side and all their weaknesses on the other, and then talk to the people around them who matter to them about those strengths and weaknesses from their own self-perspective to see if actually other people see the same thing they see. Do you think that's because of pride? Why do you think that is? I think it's because there's a big difference in most of our lives between who we present and who we are. We have difficulty with that. And that's something that you are passionate about is authenticity. Yeah, and not just authenticity. That word can be misused, too, in our culture. It's more a willingness to embrace yourself for who you are and love yourself for who you are. Many of the top leaders that I've worked with do not love themselves, and it comes right out of their childhood experiences. Yeah. So you dig that far back. Oh, we dig real deep. Yeah. (laughs) We dig real deep. See, what we do, Byron, is... We look at their values. We have an instrument we use for that, and that's objective. Then we go into a subjective area where we look at their story, and we try to filter out and to understand generational patterns, how they came into play, what kind of control do they have over your life now. And we look at that very closely. And then thirdly, we have the individual do an assessment on 50 primary relationships in their life, and that can be people who are currently engaged with them. It could be people who passed away. It could be pets. It could be an addiction. Whatever there is that you enter into a relationship with, then you can see through the chart we use. This was developed by a psychologist friend of ours. You can see through the chart that is given who's in your inner circle, who's in your outer circle, and whether they're a positive reinforcing individual or whether a person who creates tension for you. So then you know who to pull in closer and who to push out. Yeah. I was just thinking about in the Bible when you see generational curses. Mm -hmm. Is this something similar to that? Yeah, very much. This past weekend, our pastor at High Point, Will, did a whole message on this topic and laid out very clearly the concept of generational patterns and how to resolve some of the tension over that. I agreed with him totally. There are so many aspects of this that are, well, it's psychology, right? But it also is deeper than that because it has to do with the essential soul of man and how he operates. And so there's a number of ways to deal with it. Uh, Redemption is one aspect, and I appreciate Will emphasizing that on Sunday. But there are other ways to mitigate against it, maybe not with the same effectiveness, but at least the opportunity to bring a resolution to some of those tensions. So do you find amongst the leaders that you work with, these successful leaders, they haven't dealt with these type of generational past things that they've inherited or that have been maybe impacting or affecting them as leaders? Yeah, uh, they, they tend to be things that, honestly, they don't think about. They know they exist, but they just don't think about them. They, yeah. they haven't spent the emotional energy to invest in themselves. Seriously, this is a problem. It's a problem in the business world, but it's a bigger problem in the church because people will put money into all sorts of technical stuff, like we're going to go to a worship conference or we're going to a small group conference. That's not where the issues lie. All that system stuff's real easy. You can pick up a book and read that and know exactly what to do. It's where they have to do the work to get themselves centered and to understand themselves and how they impact other people. And that takes time and it takes money. Well, Nobody does that for free. Business leaders will do it because the bottom line is important to them. Church leaders, and this is my bias now, stay away from that kind of investment 
because they're afraid of the accountability that comes with it. It makes them vulnerable. Yes. They have to be transparent. Yes. Forbes notes that a modern leader can make the most out of every situation, maximizing employee potential and pushing past norms and boundaries. This kind of management is typically called organizational leadership, which can be quite demanding. Does a pastor need to have good organizational leadership? Yes and no. I think a pastor at least has to have a visionary leadership ability. But to have actually organizational leadership, I know a number of guys in ministry who are successful who don't know how to put the nuts and bolts together to make something successful, but they know where they'd like to see things go. Yeah, I think that's an area where we put unnecessary expectations on our pastors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, churches are notorious for... Um, it's like a head coach, you know, in, in a sport. Everybody in the stands knows better than that person who spent their lifetime doing it and who's been in every circumstance they can be in. It drives me crazy when I'm sitting in the stands. <laughs> I used to work with the Packers, and I'd sit up there and listen to these fans screaming stuff like they actually knew what was going on in the field. They had no idea. They didn't get the outcome they wanted, so they're throwing a fit. Yeah, I wanted to mention you were the chaplain for the Green Bay Packers for about, what, nine years? Yep. Spent time there. I know sports has been another area of leadership that you've invested time in and mm-hmm. helping in coach, too, mm-hmm. with, with basketball and yep. taking teams. We've talked about this in the past, taking teams over in Europe, playing. And uh, What's the most common question that you get asked when consulting leaders? Oh, man. I can't say there's a common one, really. Um because we we go into a process, but invariably uh, the most tender moments come when the individual leader starts to get in touch with the issues personally that have affected his or her life. And it generally has to do with their primary model, either their dad or mom, depending on whether it's a male or female leader. Wow. You would never think that. No, you wouldn't. And the thing is, they're not insecure, but they have a wound. Unless that wound is closed and healed... They carry it with them, and it affects everything they do. Maybe they had an over-dominating mom, or maybe they had a dad that was always negative. Everything they did was never right. Mm -hmm. These are subconsciously buried. Yeah, and the most common one, to be honest with you, is that most primary leaders that I've worked with do not find themselves as lovable. And they've been trying to prove to somebody, usually in their past, that they're worth it and that they matter. Money doesn't do it. Position doesn't do it. Status doesn't do it. None of that does it. The only thing you can do is close that wound. And I've worked with a number of people you would know who they are if I mentioned their name. Individuals who, for instance, because they weren't nurtured by their dad, they didn't nurture their kids. So their kid winds up wondering whether they're really lovable, whether they're worth it. And the dad just feels devastated by it when he understands it. But that can be resolved. And you can sit down with your dad and not criticize him, but you can say, Dad, I need this from you. So it's really exciting that you're probably seeing a lot of restored relationships as a result of your consulting. I I see a lot more freedom in relationships. Yeah. Yeah, because the most important thing for a leader is to be free to be them. That's the best version of who you are. When you're bound by these hidden tentacles that hold on to your heart, hold on to your ability to make decisions, because guilt does that too. There's a number of leaders we worked with. They're guilty over some situation in their life, and they haven't moved past it. We have to work through all that with them, because otherwise it'll disrupt what they're trying to do in the present and the future. Yeah. So going back to blind spots, where you have seen those blind spots derail a pastor from being an effective leader. Um, I think the number one issue... Uh, for pastors, I'm talking about successful guys I've seen, is their uh, sense of insecurity. 
I don't care what they have to say about how they got into ministry. You know, they can have a... And these are pastors who stand up and preach strong. Oh, and they can be very successful. Yeah. But they will burn the place down based on their own sense of insecurity because they make poor decisions. Eventually, it catches up with them, and it becomes obvious to the people around them. But it takes a long time usually, and there's usually something very dramatic that ends that person's involvement unless they come to grips with who they are and trying to find stability within themselves. What are the steps in developing a workable accountability structure in church leadership? Well, my basic premise around accountability, there's no accountability without consequence. And so a lot of people don't want to hear this, but I'm just going to say it. Um, The church is a business. And if it's not approached as a business, you're not going to have accountability because you're going to use words like love and grace and you're going to excuse everything and you're going to look at the prestige of the person and, oh, they were—you know—they must have God's hand on them. The church is growing. The money's coming in. I can't say anything. You know, I feel sm- – people do this all the time and then the thing blows up and they wonder why. It's because you didn't take seriously your role as a leader to say, Here, here's the boundaries, man. And here's what it's going to mean for us to approve a budget means that you don't just go out and spend money. And a lot of pastors do that, man. They go right from the offering plate to whatever their pet peeve is. It's crazy. Yeah. I was in a small church one time, and I remember that the chairman of the deacons was also chairman of the finance committee and also a head of the Sunday school department, too. And we had some crazy business meetings where he would sometimes just get all been out of shape because something wasn't going the way he wanted to, and the pastor was just... He didn't know what to do because he had this really strong person in his congregation leading. So he would just stand up and throw his pad down and walk out the door, you know, and say, I'm quitting. Pastor would always say, come back. We love you. We want you to be here. So uh, later I was asked, what would you do? And I said, well, when he gives you that resignation, take it kindly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a person like that, uh, that tells you that they're willing to hold the whole organization hostage to get what they want. And that can happen with pastors, too. They can violate every value that congregation has, and the congregation is afraid to move against it. And that's the person you got to say, you know what, this isn't working. But we actually educate our pastors to be leaders in a vacuum. You know, I, I'm not going to tell you which school, but I went to a seminary one time, and I'm not talking about personally went there, but I went to a school one time because they wanted to talk to me about leadership. And I recommended a 12-week course for all of their minister candidates because I felt like There was nothing in the graduate world that I saw that really got at the heart of personal responsibility and leadership, which is what we do. And they wouldn't accept it. They said, we do enough in that area. We don't need to do more. They have no clue. They have no clue what they're actually talking about. But they're very entrenched in what they believe to be effective. And when you look at the burnout rate and the, the failure rate, among people in ministry, you have to look at it and go, what the heck is going on here? There's something not being communicated. There's something not being vetted that needs to be in place. You're right, because pastors are leaving churches. Numbers are crazy. Joe Gallup poll found that individuals who use their strengths every day are six times more likely to be engaged on the job and are less likely to leave their company. In the context of the church, a Michigan State professor of organizational psychology, Rick Deshaun, studying the work of pastors found that the pastor's work activities are highly varied, taxing, fast-paced, unrelenting, and often fragmented. Is this due to misunderstanding their strengths? And lack of organizational management? I think that pastors early in their careers get addicted to the immediate. They don't plan. 
They don't plan for their own use of their time, of their energy, of their resources. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. A number of years ago, I worked with a group called Leadership Network. Brad Smith was the head of that organization at that time. He's now with a school down in Dallas as president. When I was working with that organization, one of the guys you would know, a pastor of a very large church in the South, uh, was sharing with other megachurch pastors that he had gone to his wife and said, I just want you to know that I've come to the realization that the church has become my mistress. It's gotten in the way of our marriage and my relationship with our children, and I want to repent of that, and I want your forgiveness. And he said there was silence. And his wife said, you've got it wrong. We're your mistress. You're married to the church. You're there all the time. You come to us when you want a diversion from what you're building over there. And he said it was devastating for him, and which I'm glad to hear it was. And he realized the work he had to do to get things back in line. We spent probably 35 years in America touting the church growth movement. And everybody wants to be the next whoever, you know. And the reality is they don't understand what's going on in the lives of those individuals. I can assure you there's a lot more to the story than what you see through the tube on Sunday. Yeah, the rest of the story, Joe. When uh, you start that relationship through a line when you work with leaders typically how long do you work with them what's the process well the initial process is usually about four and a half hours can be longer uh, depending on what they want to accomplish but what we start with is about four and a half hours of breaking down their life so that they understand them and we can only work off the information they give us but most people are very straightforward because they're there for a reason right yeah. they want to get the maximum out of what they're doing the second thing we do is once we've established their values as a primary leader, we say we would like to do what's called a value driver leadership process. So then we interview them and we break down their values uh, and give definition to them. We give, uh, you know, what are the attitudes and behaviors that go with this value? How can they be surfaced in the organization? How do people appraise them? There's a number of steps we have with that process. But what we do is we help them understand the role that their values play. Because here's the deal. In our church, for instance, our senior pastor's values will be the values of that church. We're in transition, right? We've had this new senior pastor for two years. We're moving away from what had been there before. That senior pastor's values were the primary ones then to a new model, which is senior pastor's values now. That transition is taking place. For the church to be successful, those values have to be taken out into every ministry of the church and understood and implemented and lived. Obviously, not every church can use your service. Yeah. So where do churches stand that need help like this? Yeah, if they, if they need help like this, first of all, I, I would be creative. You know, like if you're a church of 200 or 300 and you want some leadership development to take place, then get three or four or six people together, pastors from other churches, and say, let's get in touch with this group and tell them we want to work with them, because we'll work with just about anybody. But we learned a long time ago, you can't give your services away, no, because people totally discount you. Sure. Here's what ministry people don't understand. Business pay a lot of money to get what we give them. Churches expect everything on the skimp, you know. <laughs> they want to get by for 50 cents. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, you know, the scripture says a man's worthy of his hire, and the standard's been set in society at large. Doesn't mean we won't discount and help you, but you've got to be creative about how you want to approach it. Depends on how deeply and how desperate you yeah. are to approach it and to deal with it. Yeah. Because it's probably mean restructuring your whole 
ministry and the way you do things. Well, it'll change who you are, not in the sense of fundamentally change you. It'll expose you to who you are, and you'll want to give more of yourself to other people. That's where the difficulty comes. Most people in primary leadership, they present something, but they're really another person. There's that conflict all the time between who they present and who they are. And it creates confusion for people and it sends mixed messages. We try to help straighten that out because one of the greatest gifts a leader can give is clarity. So we try to help them get clarity in their own life so they can give it to other people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it, Joe. Okay, I want to go back to this authenticity because I know that you are in the business of promoting that. It's part of what Mm -hmm. you do at Align. What do you mean? Give us some examples. Of authenticity? Yeah. Well, let's just look at it within the context of, say, communication in a company. How many people do you think tell a CEO the truth about what they really think? (laughs) They don't. They don't. I don't care whether it's a small company or a large company. I don't care whether it's a three-person executive team or whether it's an eight-person executive team in a Fortune 100 company. They all operate the same. And the fact is that it's very difficult to have honest conversations in a culture, a company culture, unless the CEO is the one that drives the necessity for open communication without any ramifications. I actually worked with the military a few years ago in a situation where a colonel was dealing with a number of other field grade officers around honesty and openness and the mission they had. Let's just say it doesn't happen too often there because of positional authority, because that's how they operate. And and people hold your career in their hands because they can write reports on you. And those things stick with you. They don't go away. This colonel, in the heat of the discussion, took his patch off and put it on the ground and said, no, I want feedback from each one of you regarding the issues we're talking about. We designated the lowest ranking member of the group to get up and start the process. And they did. Yeah. By the way, you've got a grandson that's playing for Missouri. Yeah, he's actually a redshirt freshman this oh, year. Okay. Got a promising career. Yes. Joe Workovich, boy, our time is gone. It's always, it's been too long. We've got to get together on a regular basis, talk about whatever you want to talk about, you know? Thank you so much. Now, if folks want to maybe talk to you, maybe they would like to have a line, be part of their organization to help them through some of these things we've been talking about, what should they do? They should actually go to the uh, website, thealignprocess.com, and they can contact us through that. My partner is Aaron Campman, who was an all-pro defensive end with the Packers and just a brilliant guy. I love working with him. High-character fella, and uh, we were having a lot of fun together yeah. um, with the kind of people we've been able to work with. So it's been a good run. Well, Joe, thanks again for stopping by. Yeah, Byron, it's been great being with you. You take care. All right. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. What the pandemic did, it prohibited people required to be in the hospital from having an advocate. Most of them are involved in a full-time ministry pastoring the churches in Macedonia, Bosnia, Croatia, Montenegro, and Serbia. We're finding out exactly where a child is. What is their point of success? And then what is their point of weakness? That's where we start and we build from there. Mid-South Viewpoint. Listen Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 p.m. on AM640 or anytime with the Bot Radio Network mobile app or on Spotify and iTunes podcast.